And I understand the workers' frustration. Workers deserve a fair share of the benefits they help create for an enterprise. Record corporate profits, which they have, should be shared by record contracts. What? Record contracts with workers? With labor? With people who help them make the profits? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's crazy talk. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains, KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around Swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Uh, Desi Doyen, are you all are you ready? Are you all geared up? Of course. Okay. Ready good. to go. All right. Stamp fired up? Indeed. All right. Good. Uh, but let me start here. There's a whole lot, uh, as usual these days, going on politically. We've been covering in great detail in recent days. Over the weekend, Texas's cartoonishly corrupt, degenerate Republican state attorney general Ken Paxton from Desi's old home state of Texas was acquitted by the Republican-dominated state Senate of 16 articles of impeachment concerning uh, bribery, abuse of power, uh, a, a, a sexual affair with a mistress. And all It was just a mess. In any event, somehow the Republican-dominated state Senate acquitted him on all of those charges for which he may soon be criminally charged. That after, interestingly, the Republican-dominated state house in Texas actually brought 20 articles of impeachment against Ken Paxton. Also, five Americans detained for years in Iran were freed on Monday as part of a deal that saw President Joe Biden agree to unlock nearly $6 billion in frozen Iranian assets and bringing profuse thanks to the president by the families of those held captive and, of course, criticism from Republicans. In Wisconsin, Republicans are attempting to oust the Republican-appointed 
state election director just weeks at this point before elections must soon be finalized for the 2024 presidential primary elections in the state. In the critical battleground state of Wisconsin, I'm sure it'll all be fine. Also, House Republicans are still battling amongst themselves to even come up with a short-term 30-day extension to keep the government open after the end of the fiscal year in now less than two weeks on October 1. And, of course, various fallout continues from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's seemingly failed attempt last week to try and win over his far-right conference by unilaterally announcing an impeachment inquiry in the U.S. House of one President Joe Biden. Uh, I I do hope to have a little bit of time to discuss some of that along with your calls, if time allows, a little bit later this hour. But first, I I think we can say it's official now. Though we will be joined by a historian momentarily to confirm it, but organized labor seems to be having a real moment in the U.S., unlike anything that we have seen in decades in this country. On Friday, leaders leaders of the United Auto Workers called for selective work stoppages at three plants, a GM site in Missouri, a Stellantis facility in Ohio, a Ford assembly plant in Michigan. It was the first time in history that all three of the big three automakers faced strikes at the same time. The walkouts come after talks collapsed last week, largely over impasses around compensation and benefits. The union has sought a wage increase of up to 40 percent over the uh, length of the next four-year contract, along with full pay for 32-hour work weeks, better retirement pensions, and improved health care. Quote, I know that our demands are ambitious, but I've told the companies recently I'm not the reason that members' expectations are so high, said UAW President Sean Fain earlier this month. What's driving members' expectations are the big three's profits, he said. Annual gross profits have risen by 34 percent at Ford, 50 percent at GM since 2019, the last time the UAW and the big three entered contract negotiations. The big three have already agreed to raise workers' wages, but they say they uh, need to save enough money to invest in the globally competitive shift toward electric vehicles so they cannot meet the union's demands. Another key reason the UAW is pushing hard for steep wage increases is to make up for historically high inflation since securing its current contracts back in October and December of 2019. Since then, hourly U.S. wages among motor vehicle and parts manufacturers, including union and non-union workers, grew by 14.8 percent. But inflation has eroded a lot of those gains, with the Consumer Price Index showing costs rising by almost 18 percent over that same time. So, in fact, by that measure, workers would have lost money under previous UAW contracts dating back decades Many Detroit auto workers had received cost of living raises to keep up with inflation, but those provisions were done away with after the 2008 financial crisis upended the car industry. Nonetheless, at the same time, compensation for the company's CEOs has increased some 40 percent on average across the big three, at least according to the UAW. 
If Detroit's three automakers raised CEO pay by an average of 40 percent over the past four years, workers should get similar raises, the union has argued. President Sean Fain of the UAW has repeatedly cited that figure, contrasting it with the 6% pay raises auto workers have ultimately received since their last contract in 2019. Fain opened negotiations with a demand for a similar 40% wage increase over four years, along with the return of pensions and cost of living increases. The UAW has since lowered its demand to just 36 percent wage increase, but the two sides remain reportedly far apart in their contract talks. Some of the CEOs have been answering questions from the media about their about the disparity in their pay versus that of their own workers, the workers who help them earn that pay that they have enjoyed, uh, along with the record profits for the companies in recent years. The companies have been offering a 20 percent pay raise, which the union insists must be higher. Here is GM chief Mary Barra on CNN on Friday. Over the course of the last four years, you've seen a 34 percent pay increase in your salary. You make almost 30 million dollars. Why should your workers not get the same type of pay increases that you're getting leading the company. Well, if you look at uh, compensation, my compensation, 92% of it is based on performance of the company. I think one of the strong aspects of the way our compensation for our represented employees is designed is not only are we putting a 20% increase on the table, we have profit sharing. So when the company does well, everyone does well. And for the last several years, that's resulted in record profit sharing for our represented employees. And I think you have to look at the whole uh, compensation package, not only 20% increase in gross wage, but also uh, the profit-sharing aspect of it, world-class health care, and there's several other features. So we think we have a very competitive offer on the table, and that's why we want to get back there and get this done. But if you're getting a 34% pay increase over four years and you're offering 20% to employees right now, do you think that's fair? Well, I think when you look at the overall the overall structure and, and the fact that 92% is based on performance and you look at uh, what we've been doing of sharing in the profitability when the company does well, I think uh, we've got a very compelling offer on the table. If you got 32%, Mary Barra, why don't your workers who helped you receive that 32% get the same thing if you're all enjoying profit sharing? Ford CEO Jim Farley answered similar questions on Friday from CNN, asserting that the company would go out of business if they met worker demands and that they wouldn't have any money left for investing in new electric vehicle development and technology. Uh, the union is saying that CEOs like yourself of the big three have received 40% pay increases yourself. So why is it so egregious for the union workers to be asking for the same thing? Actually, we're really open to huge increases. 40%? Well, you know, it depends how you count that. <laughs> I, I wasn't a CEO four years ago, so I, I can't speak for myself. But I will tell you that we have put on the table increases double-digit increases that we've never seen before, 20-plus percent. If you include COLA, it's even larger than that. But that's that. not 40, what Right, and for. I'm saying 40 percent will put us out of business. We would lose $15 billion. We would have to plant, cut, cut people, close plants. What's the good of that? It's not a sustainable business. The, there's a fine line here that we won't go past, which is we want everyone to participate in our success. 
But if it prevents us from investing in this transition to EVs and in future products, then everyone's job's at risk if we don't invest. Really? It, it would put you out of business, would it? Jim Farley, Ford CEO. The uh, UAW chief, Sean Fain, was asked about the uh, claims made by Ford's CEO on Friday, and he minced few words in his response. You heard the CEO of Ford say that it would bankrupt them if they met your demands. What do you think of that? I think it's a joke. You know what? They could double our pay right now. The cost of labor that goes into a vehicle is 5% of the vehicle. They could double our wages and they could not raise the price of vehicles, and they would still make billions of dollars. It's a lie like everything else that comes out of their mouth. Fain continued to push back on Monday on NPR against arguments that a big pay bump for the union would somehow jack up costs of vehicles and put the big three automakers at risk, out of business, or even at a disadvantage against foreign competitors with lower-cost workforces, all of whom are now in the race to transition to electric vehicles. In the last four years for the big three, North American profits are up 65%. CEOs gave themselves 40% pay increases. Stock buybacks are up 1,500%. The average price of vehicles went up 34%, and our wages went up 6%. Now, he went on to say the reason we asked for 40 percent pay increases is because the last four years alone, the CEO pay went up 40 percent. He says they are already millionaires. The automakers, of course, dispute the claim that CEO compensation went up by 40 percent over the past four years. But calculating their pay can be tricky because of the compensation packages they enjoy and the way they're tied to millions of dollars in stock grants over several years. However you slice the numbers, however, the gap between CEO pay and rank-and-file workers at all three companies is huge. At GM, the median worker pay was about $80,000 in 2022. It would take that worker 362 years to make Barra's annual compensation. At Ford, where the median pay was uh, about $75,000, it would take Oh, just 281 years. Over at Stellantis, it would take 365 years. The pay ratio of CEO to median worker compensation is 298 to 1. So how extreme is that disparity? Well, it's far above the typical pay gap at even other S&P 500 companies, which is already 186 to 1 according to AP's annual CEO pay survey. And it's astronomical by historical standards. According to a study of the 350 largest publicly traded U.S. firms by the Economic Policy Institute, the average CEO-to-worker pay ratio back in 1965 was just 15 to 1. Now... It's about 186 to 1 at the nation's largest companies. And then, by the way, there's Tesla, which we're not even mentioning. It's not a unionized uh, uh, automaker under the notoriously anti-union CEO, Elon Musk. Tesla. Tesla's uh, total uh, – Elon Musk's total realized compensation was reported by the company in 2021 at more than $737 million. A typical Tesla worker 
Non-union, after all, earned just over $40,000 that year. For that worker to make Musk's realized compensation that year, it would take him or her more than 18,000 years. All of this comes as part of a growing trend of emboldened labor unions citing the wealth gap between workers and the top bosses to bolster their demands for better pay and working conditions. In June, for example, Netflix shareholders rejected executive pay packages in a non-binding vote just days after the Writers Guild of America wrote letters urging investors to vote against that pay proposal. They said it would be inappropriate amid Hollywood's ongoing strike by writers. The WGA wrote similar letters targeting the executive pay at Comcast and at NBC Universal. When it comes to the automakers, some are simply ignoring even shareholder wishes. In 2021, Carlos Tavares, the new CEO of Stellantis, which was formed that year by a merger of the Italian American conglomerate Fiat. A Fiat Chrysler and a French company, Tavares received a package worth about $25 million, a nearly 77% increase over the previous CEO, then Fiat Chrysler CEO Mike Manley's 2019 pay. Stellantis shareholders voted 52% to reject the pay proposal in their annual meeting, though the vote was only advisory and the board approved the package anyway. They don't even listen to their own shareholders. On Friday, President Biden, who has repeatedly described himself as the most pro-union president in history, spoke up in support of the workers. Auto companies have uh, seen record profits, including in the last few years because of the extraordinary skill and sacrifices the UAW workers. Those record profits have not been shared fairly, in my view, with those workers. But I also believe that a contract agreement must lead to a vibrant, made-in-America future that promotes good, strong, middle-class jobs that workers can raise a family on. Let's be clear. No one wants a strike. Say it again. No one wants a strike. But I respect workers' right to use their options under the collective bargaining system. And I understand the workers' frustration. Over generations, auto workers sacrificed so much to keep the industry alive and strong, especially through the economic crisis and the pandemic. Workers deserve a fair share of the benefits they help create for an enterprise. And they've been around the clock, and the companies have made some significant offers. But I believe they should go further to ensure record corporate profits mean record contracts for the UAW. Let me say that again. Record corporate profits, which they have, should be shared by record contracts for the UAW. The historic strikes at the big three automakers and at the Writers Guild of America and at SAG-AFTRA, the Actors Union, which has now shut down pretty much all of Hollywood production for months, comes on the heels of increasing demands by workers and unionization across a number of sectors in recent years, which have seen, for example, the beginning of uh, unions formed at fast food restaurants and Starbucks, as well as Amazon plants. 
Joining us now to help us put all of this into historical perspective is our old friend Nelson Lichtenstein, a labor historian and distinguished professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor and Democracy. He's also author of at least 16 books, including recent works such as Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy and his newest book titled A Fabulous Failure the Clinton presidency, and the transformation of American capitalism with author co, uh, with the co-author Judith Stein. Oh, Professor Lichtenstein, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Glad to be here. Great to have you. I, I am uh, struck in covering all of this, uh, not just with the, the strength of the arguments from the auto workers, but the fact that the Union is striking at all three major automakers at once, and, and that that has never been done in history. Is that right? And if so, what does it mean that this is happening uh, now, uh, Nelson? Yes, that's it's the first time that's happened ever. And that arises out of both weakness and strength of the union. The weakness is that pattern bargaining that is used to strike, say, Ford, mm-hmm. and then you'd move that pattern that you achieved at Ford to the other uh, companies – and that may not work so well, partly because part of the a lot of the industry is non-union, Tesla, for example, or mm-hmm. Toyota. And also, it, it it seems as if uh, some of the companies they just might not do it. So, uh, they, and the union therefore, you know, just has unionized a smaller proportion of the industry than it used to. On the other hand, striking all three does appeal to the real increase in militancy and participation uh, of uh, union members. They all want to get in. I mean, if you just strike one of them at a time, then the other the other people are just sitting on the, bi- on the, on the uh, mm-hmm. sidelines. And this strike is designed to grow in size, uh, you know, week by week as the negotiations proceed. And um, uh, so there probably will be some more factory shutdown toward the end of this week uh, to sort of encourage the negotiators on the company side to, mm-hmm. to get going. So uh, as I understand it, this is called a selective strike. Uh, The American Prospects' Robert Kuttner uh, describes uh, this today. He says it was a tactic pioneered 30 years ago by the flight attendants at the time. He says the tactic offers significant tactical benefits like conserving strike funds for workers, which would otherwise run out faster, uh, allowing for more targeted strikes against uh, parts of the uh, supply chain, et cetera, Uh, and and keeps the management off balance. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, that's been done. It's been had done in the auto industry, actually, at, at various times in mm-hmm. the early 70s, uh, when the auto companies were thinking of um, uh, building non-union plants in the South, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the UAW began to have selective strikes at General Motors. This happened other times. But the flight attendants did, did uh, do it in 30 years ago. But it's ha- yes, it has happened. However, this one is, 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 is a little different. It, it, um, it's not designed to be a rolling strike, which means you strike a company and then they a factory, then they go back to work the next week. And then now it's going to be the, the, the workers are not going to go back to work. They're mm-hmm. going to stay out and then more workers will join them and you'll begin to get a kind of momentum there. As as noted, this strike uh, comes at the at the same time as both the Writers uh, Guild strike. The actors unions have walked out here in Hollywood. Have we ever seen anything comparable to this moment in history. It seems between that and the, the you know, the things that uh, you and I have been talking about over the last couple of years, uh, Professor, with the strikes at Amazon and Starbucks and so forth, uh, is is it comparable to anything in history where, you know, so many sort of major unions are either forming and or walking out at once? 
Yes. Uh, in fact, unfortunately, <laughs> what we have today is a pale reflection of what used to happen on a routine basis uh, uh, up through about the end of the 1970s. Uh, there were 10 times more strikes each year, 20 times uh, in, in the in the period from the well, from the late 30s on into the late 70s. Uh, the early 1970s were just full of strikes, uh, auto strikes, uh, post office strikes, uh, 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 strikes of airline uh, employees. Mm-hmm. The uh, in, in this and the and the seventy, even as late as the uh, mid seventies, or big auto strikes and steel strikes. Uh, yes, they, they had the now. Now there's a certain excitement about it here because the unions have been in the doldrums, uh, management's been in the driver's seat, and there is clearly a, a sense of militancy and, mm-hmm. and and excitement. And and it's and also new workers like graduate students and uh, museum employees and mm-hmm. uh, some retail workers, which you know have to have. Gone on, gone, either formed unions or gone on strike. But uh, in, back in the, you know, for 30, 40 years, uh, you know, between the late 30s and the 70s, you know, the, uh, the, there will be. Just, just looking at the strike statistics, they were 10 times as high uh, as this. And, they, and of course, mm-hmm. in the great post-war strike wave of 45, 46, there were probably a thousand times more workers on strike mm-hmm. and many more unions. Um, uh, so, so, but on the other hand, I mean, there's a lot of spirit and there's a lot of excitement and there's public support for unions is very widespread. Uh, and uh, there are some new unions are trying to form uh, against management hostility. But so so it's not like nothing is happening. But mm-hmm. I just want to make just just give you the dimensions here. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, in 1970, when the UAW struck just General Motors mm-hmm. alone, there were 400,000 workers on strike mm. for two months in the fall of 1970. Do you expect that we might see something like that where the uh, where all the plants are at all three of the automakers are uh, yeah, shut well, down? At once? Be, yes, it could be. Yes. If. If the the union uh, wants to uh, hang tough, and I, let me just say one thing, I think that that you, you mentioned obviously these the, uh, the union wants you know thirty or forty percent mm-hmm. wage increase. The management's gotten that; they're making lots of profits. That's all true, uh, and I think the union is making progress on on just simply getting a wage increase to make up for really concessions they offered in the past. But what's really a sticking point here? Is and it's not exactly a, a kind of how should I put it legitimate part of the negotiations because the companies say yeah, we aren't we aren't going to negotiate about this. It has to do with the new plants that will be open mainly in the south mm-hmm. to build batteries and all the all the companies and then all, also the Toyotas and Nissans and Teslas for that matter are building these battery plants and off many of them are joint ventures meaning you know partly Korean or, or, or Taiwanese or something. Mm-hmm. And the companies say, oh, th- you know, this is not part of the agreement. We aren't bargaining over that. In fact, many of the workers haven't even been employed. They haven't, even, they haven't built the plants. They haven't been employed. But if we're going to have a green transition, if we're going to have electric vehicles, the mm-hmm. wave of the future, uh, and you're going to have a, a, a workforce, which is you know, paid at the, at the level of that, you know, manu- auto unionized auto workers have traditionally gotten, mm-hmm. you know, you need to reach some settlement here on the uh, some agreement on the on the these battery plants. And and, the, and one thing that makes it possible is the federal government is providing really, uh, I think, tens of billions of yeah. dollars in incentives to do that. Yeah. So there's a leverage there. And one reason that Fain uh, properly is saying, uh, you know, we want Biden to earn our endorsement. We aren't going to get is 
they expect the Biden administration, which is providing all of these billions of dollars, our tax dollars passed in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, they want Biden to tell these uh, um, auto companies, look, you want this money? You want these subsidies? You want these loans? Well, we expect you to have unionized, you know, good wage mm -hmm. uh, plants that you're building all over the South. Now, that's a that's tough because some of these plants, some of these companies that are building these plants are um, uh, non-union right now, like Toyota or Tesla. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is this is this is where the crunch is going to come, and uh, and the and if the union decides that it makes it clear that this is, it, it really wants some agreement on that, then we're going to have a long strike. I, I want to uh, talk a little bit more about Joe Biden in a second. But just to, uh, for, for the historical aspect here, even though we're not seeing, you know, the type of numbers that we saw, you know, in the 70s and earlier, do we see that uh, labor strikes or, or, you know, perhaps the emboldening of the labor movement, as we certainly seem to be seeing here, no matter what the size is, that that historically does it come in waves uh, like this across okay. uh, different industries? And if so, is there a common element that historically sort of triggers this sort of thing? Well, yeah, it does come in waves. You're right. Since the 1880s, you know, a period of, of unions and resurgence, First World War, the 30s, the 60s, when mm -hmm. it comes to public employment and 70s, too. Um, yes, waves. Absolutely. The other thing is that, that not that you've all, all, all you have a layers layers of the working class are in motion uh not everyone uh and so you know uh in the in the 60s african american you know public employees of memphis and and other places they were they were in motion that mm -hmm. was part of the civil rights world uh today you know it's often among one sector is sort of co college educated or want to be college educated the kind of people who work at starbucks or or grad students or work at rei or mm -hmm. or places like that they're in motion they're they're clearly you know doing things and then of course you know blue blue collar workers as well i think who you know at uh, fed at uh, excuse me uh, ups mm -hmm. and in the auto industry and other places as well so you know you you don't have everyone in motion at the same time but you have a kind of a you know a, a, a kind of elements that are that are in in front and then people see hey if they can win you know we can win mm -hmm. and so that's what you you know you you hope is a kind of momentum that's building now i have to say american management today is very sophisticated and intransigent when it comes to unionization. Mm. Uh, they are the, well, just as the uh, big three auto plants, which are unionized, big mm. three auto companies, you know, they don't want a union or, or certainly they don't want a high pay in their battery plants. They're going to be built. They want, they want to really institute a new tier, which the union has been against. The same is true, uh, say at Starbucks or FedEx or Amazon, you know, they're willing to give some wage increases there, but they don't want to recognize a union. And that's what's been happening. So you have this situation of, you do have a certain amount of militancy and public support for unions, but that has not affected management uh, thinking that, you know, that, mm. oh, well, we better, you know, we better give in because otherwise, you know, what's something's going to happen. No, they, they've hung tough. And that's, uh, you know, something that maybe this auto strike will will have some impact on. Uh, but thus far, that's been what's going on here. In, well, in, you know, when they report. Yeah. Well, when they report that, oh, if if we do this, if we give it the kind of raises that uh, the unions want here, it will put us out of business. Is there anything? No, that, that's not true. No, no. But let me say yeah. this. But what it will no, they won't put them out of business. But what it will do, uh, it's possible. And this is this is this is part of the the real problem. If uh, it, it, I think they will get some a good wage increase. Um, they don't want to be the management doesn't want to be at a competitive disadvantage 
to Tesla, which still produces more than half of all mm-hmm. electric cars right now, mm-hmm. uh, or Toyota, which is a huge company and, and is going into this, they don't want to be at a competitive disadvantage. If they are, their profits will be lower, and the company won't go out of business, but their stock price will plummet on Wall Street. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and so you know that that. And by the way, Mary Barry's uh, oh ninety two percent of my of my compensation is is, is based on performance. What yes. that means is manipulation of stock price. She gets stock options uh-huh. which are priced in such a way that they will give her a huge salary. That's what it means. And those things won't be as valuable if the profitability of the firm is, is less. Now, now there are two, there's a way to solve this problem. The union, the UAW can organize Tesla and organize Toyota. Uh-huh. And if they get a good wage settlement, a really good wage settlement, uh, which, you know, which Biden is you know, urging, then they can take that you know, to as organizers, to Tesla workers, to Toyo workers, say, look, this is what a militant democratic union can win for you. Join us. That So on the other hand, the companies might say, look, the UAW has been trying to organize these non-union companies for 40 years. You know, Sean Fain may be a militant, but why do we think it's going to happen again? So maybe we should hang tough on on wage negotiations because uh-huh. they aren't going to do it. And mm. if that's the case, we're really going to be at a disadvantage Tesla. So this is this is why the labor law and union organizing is crucial to, you know, the, the success of this, of, of really of, 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 of well, creating a, a, a high wage auto workforce, whether it's uh, in battery plants or not. Yeah. Professor Nelson Lichtenstein, I, I I got a bunch of more questions I want to ask you, and I need to take a quick break. Are you able to stick around for a little bit longer after the break yeah, here? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. All right. Uh, stick around. Uh, we're speaking with Professor Nelson Lichtenstein of uh, Labor Historian at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. We'll come back with some uh, more questions that I want to ask him about President Biden and his effect on all of this and, frankly, the effect of the presidency overall when it comes to the labor movement. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Find out. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com speaking about uh, the the latest really wave in America in the American labor movement, along with the uh, strikes at three different big three auto uh, auto plants uh, beginning on Friday and continuing now, along with the strikes out here in Hollywood with the Writers Guild of America. SAG-AFTRA, et cetera. Speaking with Nelson Lichtenstein, the labor historian and distinguished professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara. His newest book is a fabulous, is called A Fabulous Failure. The book itself is not a failure. It's called A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. Uh, Professor, um, 
I know that uh, the, the book uh, is about Clinton's betrayal of progressive principles, and I want to get to that in a moment. But how much of this this wave of uh, of, of of strikes and and the uh, really the labor movement rising up for the first time in so many years? How much of this current wave of these emboldening unions has to do? With Joe Biden, who has described himself as the most union pro-union president in history. I realize that's kind of a low bar, really. Uh, But uh, Biden versus Donald Trump being in the White House. In other words, does the person in the White House have any effect on labor movements in general and their uh, their interest in, in striking and standing up to management? Well, it can, it can, and, I, and I'll, I'll I'll say exactly what what Biden can do and can expect it to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I would say that you know the, the, the labor movement and and other social movements are 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 independent of of some elite giving a speech. Uh, that was true of the civil rights movement. And for example, under Trump, we had these spectacularly uh, large uh, teacher strikes in non-union, and they were you know West Virginia and uh, what Oklahoma mm-hmm. and places like that. So yeah. I mean, so you know the the labor movement. Has has an autonomous uh, uh, dynamic of its own. Now, it, you know, it's helpful when a when a when a president, whether it's FDR or a, or a Biden, mm-hmm. will say, "Yes, you're right. Uh, go on. You should do it." I mean, that 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 is helpful. That's uh, he has a big megaphone, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and and that's good. Now, Biden has done this rhetorically. Uh, he said, "I'm pro-union," but he he. But, you know, what would be needed here is, you know, for him to put the squeeze on the auto companies to mm-hmm. say, you know, both, you know, we, you should give them a high high wage offer. And also we want an agreement on on unionization of these battery plants and other EV plants, with many of which will be in the south. Mm-hmm. And this is where the politics comes in, because um, the the. Uh, Biden would he wants to reindustrialize the Midwest and the Mid South. Mm-hmm. This is where you know Trumpism. I mean, has has you know gained a, such such a purchase, and he thinks that I think correctly, at least in the long run, if you have a, a more vibrant you know economy for ordinary workers, they will they will be you know they won't be looking for right wing um, authoritarian uh, solutions. On the other hand, the Republicans. Um, uh, and Trump here is making this very explicit. Uh, they they sort of they they want the green transition to fail, not just because for some cultural reason because they don't like uh, you know uh, climate issues, but but they, but they 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 fear um, a unionization in their backyard. That is what Republicans dislike. It's not so much the high wages that might come with a union, although that's something also they aren't in favor of. Uh, but it's unions are, in fact, generally speaking, you know, on the left mm-hmm. and new unions in particular are way on the left <laughs> and certainly are Democratic and even to the left of that. And, you know, in when it, 10 years ago, when when the management at Volkswagen in Chattanooga, they, they, they were German. Sure. Have a union. That's not our, you know, we, we have them in Germany. Not a problem. <laughs> it was the local political class in 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 Tennessee that just came out like a ton of bricks mm-hmm. against a union and they actually defeated it. So it's the political class in the South that is that does not. Not want uh, Biden to use these these uh, this money to encourage unionization. In fact, they'd they'd rather just stop the whole thing and tell workers, you know, the whole idea of a green transition of of good good high wage uh, electrical uh, vehicle plants that's a mirage. Forget it. You should be against uh, uh, you know cl- climate change initiatives of that sort. Uh-huh. And 
speak with us. And that's what they're saying. And they're saying that everyone, they're all saying that it's don't do it. it it's not going to work. Uh, you'll be defeated. They're sort of saying you'll be defeated. You will not organize the South. So give up on it. And that, and you can hear that from Trump and all of them are saying that. And, and yet, of course, Republicans, you know, have always said that, I think, traditionally. Uh, but, you know, you noted that, that these people in the industrialized Midwest that where they've had so many problems that Trump was able to uh, exploit, let them uh, believe in any event that he was concerned about them, concerned about the forgotten man and all of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Isn't this an opportunity for Joe Biden to make clear? I mean, uh, I don't think uh, Donald Trump is out there calling for these uh, wages. Absolutely. And and it's sort of like a creative tension between uh, the UAW and Biden. Absolutely. This is the this is a big, big opportunity for the Biden people. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they can if they can, you know, help engineer a successful win by the union. I mean, Biden can tout that, you know, in every speech he gives from now until the election. Right. Hey, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm the real champion of the working class. This guy, Trump, is phony. And I think they are, in fact, looking for a UAW victory on that ground. That's what great Democratic politicians of the past uh, from FDR on did that. Every, let me say, between 1944 and 19... Um, 64, 1948, mm-hmm. 1964, every Democratic politician uh, for president began his campaign in Cadillac Square in downtown Detroit mm. with the leaders of the UAW on the podium, because this was the heart of the, the this was the core of the Democratic Party, the organized work, working class. And Biden, uh, you know, coming from Scranton, you know, hey, he understands that, at least mm-hmm. rhetorically, and he wants to do that again. Well, that's the question. Rhetorically, does his rhetoric match up with actions by this White House? You and I, we've talked about it, and he has come out rhetorically uh, yeah. at some key moments and said, you know, some very yeah. uh, pro-union well, well, statements. Well, right. well, yeah, everything from the from the nature of the labor law, which which the, we now have a very liberal uh, National Labor Relations Board, but but the courts uh, have nevertheless uh, kind of uh, hamstrung it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also Biden's tools, Biden's capacity to actually use these billions of dollars as a kind of, you know, uh, prod or more than that, a kind of almost blackmail to blackmail the, the companies <laughs> saying, you, know, you won't get your, your loan unless you go union. Uh, he's constrained on that, uh, in, in, by law and legislation. And so when the Inflation Reduction uh, Act was passed last year, mm-hmm. uh, good old, uh, Joe Manchin, uh, yep. took out a provision which would have given in, an incentive to, yep. to, uh, car buyers to buy union made, uh, product. He took that out. So it, it limits. You know, Biden is limited. Now, I, now he, you know, there are other things presidents can do. Uh, but, you know, there are, you know, he he is constrained. So he has he does have rhetoric. But uh, I mean, there are things presidents can do. There are definitely. But nevertheless, uh, you know, we've had does it. We've had decades and decades of anti-union legislation, mm-hmm. court rulings, uh, you know, et cetera. Uh, and so it's it's a little it's hard. Your uh, your new book, newest book, uh, a fabulous failure: the Clinton presidency and the transformation of American capitalism, with uh, co-author Judith Stein. You talk about the Clinton administration, their betrayal of progressive principles, right. uh, capitulating to the right. How does Bill Clinton's record on labor compare to that of well Barack Obama, now Joe Biden? Is it, and is it even fair to tie the stagnation of wages for uh, 
labor that I talked about at the at the introduction in the last segment, the stagnation in wages for labor versus that of CEOs. Uh, is it fair to tie that to Bill Clinton, or do we need to go back even farther well, I mean, to the Reagan years, yeah, I mean, et cetera? Yeah, right. You're right. I mean, presidents preside over this big kind of a, a, a bureaucracy and then also kind of their moment in time. Are you having a recession or a, mm-hmm. uh, during the during your presidency? And they aren't entirely in control of that. Clinton, Clinton was clearly t- tone deaf to the labor movement, and actually for some good reasons, because the labor movement in the, in the mid-90s was, was, was very uh, kind of uh, – uh, conservative, solid, you know, not dynamic. Uh, that was one of the worst periods of the labor movement. Today, much it's much more exciting, and, and new leadership, for example, has come to the fore. Um, but Clinton didn't do what even anything. He, he, he some of the things he could do, uh, and he he really uh, marginalized the labor movement. I, I, and, and by the way, uh, when it came to trade deals in particular, uh, there were lots of labor-supported Democrats who did not want NAFTA, did not want mm-hmm. the opening to China, and Clinton. Really Really just divided the Democratic Party uh, in pushing these bills through Congress, and I, and I show that you know the, a lot of that in my book. Biden, at the very least, has a it's a united Democratic Party pretty much behind him, uh, and and that's true for both on trade deals and uh, and and you know and the uh, various domestic laws that he's passed. Uh, he has a much more de- more unified party, which means Biden can do things with very slim minority, uh, slim majorities that Clinton nor Obama, for that matter, Mm. could do with larger majorities because they don't have a unified party behind them. Mm -hmm. Clinton certainly didn't, and uh, and Obama Obama to a degree. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, you know, this it's a new day. Uh, Let me just give you one example. Gene Sperling, who was was in the uh, Biden administration, was also in the Clinton administration, very, uh, a very important figure. In it just shows the way times have changed. Gene Sperling is sent to China in 1999 to finalize the the, the opening of China, uh, uh, you know, to trade into the World Trade Organization. And mm-hmm. basically what hollowed out the Midwest in the next five years was the the this boom, enormous boom in, in manufacturing with China. And he, he was the guy who presided over that. Mm-hmm. Today, just I just heard this three days ago, but uh, uh, Joe Biden has sent Gene Sperling to Detroit <laughs> to oh. hammer out a deal with the auto companies. Mm. And but, you know, he's changed his, his political tune. And I'm sure he's doing Joe Biden's uh, bidding in mm-hmm. in trying to get these these auto companies to really what, what it is to rectify the damage that Clinton and and Sperling did, you know, 23 mm. years ago uh, in, in in opening a trade with China. So uh, and and really, in, in, I mean, you you had to have trade with China, but it could have been managed in a much more careful fashion, mm-hmm. and they didn't do that. Well, you, you talk, Professor, about uh, this being exciting. What's going on? You you cite the the young workers, and in fact, yeah. the level of support for unions not yeah. only is at near record highs among the American people, but it's particularly high amongst young people. I find that very exciting. But uh, you know, the the auto workers in this case as one example, seem to be digging very deep. They're not just seeking better compensation, uh, you know, as as unions have historically fought for, but, you know, actually potentially, if I'm right, trying to change the paradigm for workers if they're successful. I know that, uh, you know, for example, we can thank unions by and large for the idea of a 40-hour work week and even the idea that weekends are Saturday and Sunday, Mm -hmm. that they exist. But the UAW here 
is actually seeking a 32-hour work week in their demands to automakers, essentially a four-day work week. That seems to be a new paradigm entirely in these uh, negotiations. Am I reading that correctly? And could we see something like that if successful in the auto industry? Would that then something like that spread to other industries as uh, as well as the uh, auto workers if they're well, successful? 30-hour week. Uh, was proposed first in the early depression era as a way of spreading the work. Mm. Um, and of course, with 30 hour week, you know, didn't mean living in poverty it meant, you know, you have to raise wages. So it was a 30 hour week for 40 hours pay. It was also raised in the in the late 40s and early 50s, uh, especially at the Rue, at the River Rouge, the giant Ford Local 600, which is a really a font of radicalism at that time. Then Walter Ruther picked it up, uh, you know, and, and, and the way the UAW has gone about it and some of the other companies, unions is while they haven't gotten the four day week or directly the 30 hour week, what they have gotten have been more holidays. So they just won Juneteenth. Juneteenth was just yeah. conceded by all three of the of the of the auto companies mm-hmm. as a holiday, paid holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've gotten a, you know, vacation pay and things of that sort. Now, the real problem that the auto workers face is is mandatory overtime, mm. you know, and like 60 hours a week. And uh, that that they would li- they would like to, uh, uh, you know, at least make some of that overtime voluntary rather than mandatory. So and that, and that will have the effect of spreading the work and the, you might, and the companies might have to hire more workers or, or or bring some of those temporary workers, make them full time regular employees. So, um, the, I mean, I don't think the 32 hour week is gonna, is a, is a kind of going to be one this time. But what you can begin to do do is to move in that direction well with more holidays and time off and personal time off and things of that sort and uh, and and the 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 uh, but 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 the question of mandatory overtime that is a is is probably more pressing and and many mm. many workers are just you know just this is ruining my life you know i can't mm. you know yeah you know. let me say one more thing yeah. i think sean fain's speeches sound to me like a combination of Walter Ruther, who was the kind of legendary founder of the union, who who declared in 1947 that the UAW is the vanguard in America, meaning what it, the standards it established, the political initiatives it put was a, was sort of going to lead the country. You know, uh, he wasn't waiting for some politician. Mm-hmm. He, the UAW was going to do it. And Fain, you know, makes it very clear in his speeches that that he's not just this strike is not just about auto workers it's about the entire american working class mm-hmm. he makes that very clear and he uses that phrase mm. And then so it's Ruth, he's channeling Walter Ruther, who died in 1970, but is also channeling Bernie Sanders, you mm-hmm. know, and who's been on the podium with Sean Fain. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, that, you know, that that he, he Fain is getting to be a better and better speaker. The other thing Fain has done is that he has formed a kind of internal alliance with the left. Uh, mm. There has always been a left in the auto workers. Mm-hmm. The, they were often uh, shunted aside or marginalized, mm. but there is a left, and he has brought some of these people onto his staff, and they're part of the conversation now. And this gives a kind of vitality and an oomph to Shane's leadership.
And of course, he was elected democratically in a hard-fought election. You know, that was a far more, uh, you know, uh, uh, it was just a Democrat. I mean, so, so when I hear uh, uh, people talking about labor bosses, yeah. I mean, it's just it's just absolutely ridiculous. Sean Fain is the most democratically elected and 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 functioning uh, union leader we've had in many many a day. Let me get uh, as long as we've gone this far, Professor. Let me get just a few more thoughts from you. Uh, do you you know we're seeing, as I mentioned, a huge uh, support. Uh, highest levels in, you know, going back at least since 1965, if not all the way back to the 30s, support for labor unions. Uh, what do we know <clears throat> about whether those numbers rise or fall as these strikes grow broader and grow longer? Do, does it come at some cost to public support over a period of time as yeah. as they begin to feel the pain? Yeah, good question. Traditionally, traditionally, long strikes are losing strikes. Long strikes are bad strikes. But I but sometimes exceptions prove the rule. And I think that's what we're having today. I think that even I mean, the, the Hollywood writer strikes. I mean, it was interesting. Uh, who was it? Uh, Drew Barrymore wanted to go back to work. And, and, yeah. and, you know, right away that was shut down. I mean, they're still retain a, a lot of strength. You know, I mean, Hollywood strikes tend to be longer because you have this uh, in inventory of, of, of scripts and, and, and films that have already been made. But anyway. Uh, and the same with auto auto strikes. You know, oh, if they go on longer, oh, they're ruining the economy, uh, et cetera. Uh, worker are getting hurt. But I think in this case, well, they've organized the strike so that only only a relative handful of workers are on strike now and then that will grow. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I think there's public support out there. I think I think there's a thirst for successful mm-hmm. union uh, you know, negotiations, strikes, etc. Uh, and I think the the Teamsters would have had a tremendous support if they'd gone on strike. Um, they want a good contract. Winning begets winning. People want to win. <laughs> and mm. if they can see you're winning, then let's do it. Uh, and what part of the winning that has taken place recently, although it, it's been the, you know, there have been increases in the in the nominal wage. Uh, c- companies, you know, union and non-union, mainly non-union, have, have in fact increased wages because there's been a labor shortage. And people see that, oh, well, you know, good. My, my labor is valued. Maybe I can I can. I'm not so worried about joining a union or or, or something of that sort. Uh, whereas if there if there was a recession, that they would be. So that's part of the uh, the the, uh, the the moment we're in. The other thing, by the way, is the pandemic, and I don't think we fully uh, grasp the the power of that. Mm. During the pandemic, I think millions, tens of millions of workers felt betrayed by their managers, even when the managers were trying to do the right thing, because. Could they protect their health? Could they protect their income? The answer was no. And I think it, it discre- had the effect of discrediting management in a broad way, you know, way beyond the question of unionism. It was just in a very broad way. Mm-hmm. And it affected tens and tens of millions of people. And I think uh, that ha- was a predicate for what some of the things that are happening today. I've only got about 30 seconds, Professor, but uh, as you have watched, we've sort of discussed how these how these movements tend to come in waves over the years. Um, when we see these waves coming you know, across many sectors, uh, labor uprisings, so to speak, uh, when we have seen that historically, um, give us a spoiler here. Do the unions end up winning or do they end up uh, getting weaker with these uh, these kind of uh, these kind of waves? Well, they get stronger. They certainly get stronger. And that's what we're, that's what we're hoping for. It requires, a, uh, you know, a I know organization. we're hoping for that. But is that yeah, what we actually no, see I mean, historically? No, no, no. 
in these yes they they get stronger they're stronger yeah. yes yeah. unions unions win in waves and then and then there's a period of stasis afterwards but but they but they get stronger unquestionably yes Historian, labor historian Nelson Lichtenstein, the distinguished professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor and Democracy. He's also a winner of the uh, Sidney Hillman Foundation's Sal Stetton Award for Lifetime Achievement in Labor History. His newest book is a fabulous. I think it's your newest unless you've written another one. I know you've written a lot of them, uh, Professor. So the newest one is A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism with uh, his co-author Judith Stein. You can find Nelson on the Twitters, I think, still with Mm -hmm. uh, on uh, Elon Musk's Twitter anti-union Elon Musk's Twitter. You can find him at Nelson Lichten's the number one. Uh, Nelson, always great speaking with you, my friend. And I'm delighted that we've had so many reasons to do so in recent years. Uh, Let's hope we have more in the near future, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Well, that went uh, much longer than I had planned on because I just had so much I needed to talk to uh, I know. talk to him about. There's there so, is so yeah. much to talk about. It's really remarkable. And, of course, I have to remind everybody that, you know, that unions are clearly very important because otherwise corporations would not pay so much and fight so hard to them. stop people from organizing in yep. the first place and stop them from striking or in any way trying to increase their wages, their compensation, their working conditions, all of that after workers have, especially in the auto mm-hmm. industry, sacrificed sacrificed so much over the last, I don't know, since the 2008 financial crisis alone, just to keep the industry going. Well, you know, what I'm really interested in is how this plays out over time as these strikes hopefully grow. I mean, we hope they don't go on forever. We hope they go on as short as possible. But, uh, you know, uh, seeing these uh, unions standing up for the first time really in my adult life, where I have seen uh, you know so many industries all standing yes. up at once, I will be interested. You know, because I'm a sort of a kid of the Reagan years when it was all about decreasing the size of the unions and you know shutting down the the air traffic controllers and uh, oh, a union became a dirty word to many people. True, that is all changing. So I'm or it seems to be. I hope it is. It'll be interesting to see if the American people continue their support as. Uh, Professor Lichtenstein suggests they should, or at least they have, over periods uh, akin to this uh, throughout history. Fascinating conversation. Thanks again uh, to my guest, Professor Nelson Lichtenstein of UC Santa Barbara, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. I want to also thank my producer, of course, Desi Doyen, my board operator, Wendell Handy. Thank you, sir. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other we've ever done, you can download them all for free at bradblog.com. You can also drop me email if you like. I'd love to hear from you. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Mastodons, and yes, site still known as Twitter, you will find me at The Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. You're listening to The Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. I'm Rick Smith.
And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1951. That was the day pineapple workers on the island of Lanai emerged victorious. ILWU Local 142 workers were back on the job after seven months on strike against the Hawaiian Pineapple Company. It was the first contract signed by the new big union that had recently organized 35,000 sugar and pineapple workers. Local newspapers rejoiced that the long silent whistle signaling workers back to the world's largest pineapple plantation was finally blowing. The workers on other islands ended their strike in May for an eight cent an hour wage increase. Lanai workers held out for additional demands. They wanted an end to the anti-Filipino discrimination they faced in wages and housing and the poor treatment they endured from their bosses. Historian Denicio Naden Valdez notes that, quote, the ultimate concern was equal treatment and dignity for Filipinos. For decades a colonized workforce lacking citizenship rights. It was a further step towards building interracial unionism. The press, of course, vilified the strikers, red-baiting their union leaders and extolling the virtues of the company for bringing progress to the island. But the union won big. They reestablished pattern bargaining lost in an earlier strike. They also secured additional wage increases, dues collection, seniority rights, inexpensive housing, and medical coverage. Importantly, there were contract provisions that addressed mechanization and de-skilling of work. The union was finally in a position to change unfair job classifications, winning higher pay for the jobs that required operation of new machinery. What the union could not control in the long run was what Valdez referred to as the runaway plantation. By the 1970s, employment had plummeted as companies fled union fields for cheaper land and labor in Thailand and the Philippines. 